From the Wilkes Center for Climate Science and Policy at the University of Utah, I'm Ross Chambliss, and we're talking climate. For this week's show, I recently had the chance to talk with Ricardo Rubio. He's a doctoral student in the Department of Sociology. Rubio grew up in the borderlands region of southwestern Texas, where he came to recognize the challenges and vulnerabilities of communities like his increasingly face because of water scarcity, a lack of infrastructure, and climate change. His current research is focused on documenting these challenges and identifying possible solutions. Rubio's research is part of a University of Utah College of Science SRI stream, that's the Science Research Initiative, called Big Data for Climate Science. Rubio is a research assistant under Dr. Sarah Gineski at the Center for Natural and Technological Hazards at the University of Utah. His work is focused on investigating social disparities in the face of climate change-related hazards and disasters, specifically the risks posed to communities of lower economic standing. So, uh, Ricardo Rubio, uh, I'm excited to learn more about what you've been working on, and uh, thank you so much for taking this time to, to talk with us. Oh, yeah. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, can you just tell us what uh, what you are researching? Yeah, so currently I'm working on my dissertation, and my dissertation is related to looking at water insecurity along the U.S.-Mexico border. And this is the first study to look at the, the sort of disparity of this water-related hazard uh, throughout the entirety of the U.S.-Mexico border, stretching from Texas to California. And I'm primarily looking only at what's known as the border lands or the border region defined by the La Paz Agreement. And that's roughly 62.5 miles north and south of the physical border wall. And I'm only looking at the U.S. side because that's where my data is available. Mm-hmm. Um, and within the borderland exist these uh, communities called colonias. And these colonias are uh, these peri-urban settlements that exist... Um, they're typically on the outskirts of towns and they're unincorporated settlements that typically don't have access to uh, basic utilities such as uh, paved roads, electricity, uh, water service, either piped water or wastewater service. Um, and these are some of the most marginalized communities, not only within the borderlands, but throughout the entirety of the U.S. Hmm. And I'm looking specifically at uh, their lack of access to plumbing and what's the way I measure plumbing comes from the U.S. Census Bureau, more specifically the American Community Survey, and what's it's referred to as plumbing incompleteness. And this is essentially a lack of access to hot and cold running water, uh, having a flushing toilet, and a lack of having a bathtub or a shower. Hmm. So I, what I'm looking at here is what demographics, you know, and what demographics are specifically related or more likely associated with a lack of plumbing. And some of the demographics I'm looking at are uh, citizenship and nativity, English proficiency, um, race, ethnicity, disability status, single woman-led household status, poverty, and tenure status. Essentially, people are renting or owning these houses where they live. And then within these households, um, I'm also doing this sort of intersectional analysis, this intracategorical analysis, where it's essentially you're comparing differences within uh, often homogenized groups, and this can be the six major racial and ethnic categories uh, as defined by the census. So it's it would be something similar to comparing someone who is Latino and foreign-born and how they compare to someone who's Latino and U.S.-born and sort of doing these intersections of other demographics within the broader racial and ethnic categories. Interesting. So, and, and sort of what questions or 
challenge are you are you setting out to address um, when you when you started this work using all this data? Yeah. So initially, the way I wanted to start doing this data this now this project, sorry, was I wanted to track uh, rates of plumbing and completeness and how they've changed over time, and to see if there's been increases or decreases depending on the demographic makeup of the specific areas or specific cities along the U.S.-Mexico border. But that turned out to be a challenge. Uh, given the limitations of the data, I can't say why that was a challenge, but I, essentially I couldn't do it that way. So I just started thinking of it uh, in a sort of intersectional perspective that I've done in previous work uh, related to air pollution as well as food insecurity. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so uh, it was more so, you know, no study before has looked at the entirety of the borderlands. So that was one aspect of adding to it, you know, carrying out this analysis in the entirety of this area, and then as well adding this intersectional analysis that hasn't been done before, and then adding the geographic boundaries of colonias uh, that hadn't also been done before, where the boundaries only existed for New Mexico and Texas, and that's a majority of these water and security studies had been done. And it's a general under, there's a general understanding in the literature that colon, people in colonias are more water insecure, uh, but that's not necessarily, water security capture, there's a lot of different proxies for water insecurity, um, and the plumbing and completeness measure that I'm looking at is one proxy. So this proxy hadn't been looked at at the entirety of the borderlands, but it's look, been looked at through the entirety of the, you know, like the contiguous U.S. Mm. So, you know, breaking it down to this area and not only looking at it specifically within the borderlands, but looking at it within the colonias. And as I mentioned earlier, their geographies weren't known for Arizona and California. So I worked with an undergraduate student to... Uh, manually digitize these areas uh, and the data for these colonias came from the rural community assistance partnership and they gave us uh, point data that we were able to use with their uh, number of lots data to sort of you know count the area of what the colonium you know most likely possibly is and that allowed us to analyze colonias in their entirety which hadn't been done before interesting and one understanding i have of this particular sri stream or this this research endeavor you're taking on is that you're you're able to get some access to a, a lot of incredible like sort of fine data yeah. on on these topics right can you talk about that like what's the process been like for you to access this yeah so uh i'm accessing my data through the wasatch front uh statistical what is it? Sorry. The Research Data Center um, essentially is what they're all called throughout the U.S. Research Data Centers. And there's a very specific here name that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, so essentially you submit a proposal for a project or multiple projects that you want to do in there that was submitted by uh, Dr. Tim Collins and Dr. Sarah Graneski. And they asked me to be a part of this research, uh, given I had changed my dissertation topic and working with this data would be, you know, the best thing possible. Um and yeah, essentially what you have to do in order to gain status to the ability to work in there is known as special sworn status. And it's this multi, like month, months long process where you do these uh, census research trainings, um, essentially ensuring, you know, excuse me, what kind of data you're going to be working with, the sensitivity of this data, and ultimately what your responsibility is as a researcher to be taking care of this data. And, you know, this is different from public data where anyone could access it but there are several steps you need to take in order to gain this uh, access to this data. And essentially, once you gain special sworn status, after you know, you've done your fingerprints, you've done your interviews, you've done your trainings, you're essentially ensuring the census that this person knows what they're doing, they're gonna take care of this data, 
um, not just beforehand, but once they get results and they're going to ensure that um, I would assume is the biggest uh, concern of the census is that this data isn't, first of all, easily accessible and the richness of this data makes people identifiable. And that's the last thing they want in order, you know, no one wants to be identified. And this gets a bit more complex when you're working with very, I'd say, more uncommon demographics. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who's African-American, foreign-born, and doesn't speak English very well. You know, this isn't a very common demographic, at least when the within the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, that is a primary that's a primarily Latino population, hmm. right? There's a very low population of the, of African Americans, so as they got to start to get more rare, their demographics per se, it could be easier to identify them, and you need to take the proper measures to make sure this isn't going to happen once mm-hmm. you start extracting your results and start putting out your papers. Yeah. Right. And so with, with all this data that you've been able to have access to and collect, um, sort of what, what, what's sort of the information or what are, what are sort of the patterns you're looking for? Or I guess overall, like what, what do you hope to gain or discover with, with this project? Yeah, with this project. So essentially, um, as I've done, as I've used this intracategorical approach again, which is looking at differences within uh, major racial and ethnic categories that can also be ex- expanded to other demographics, but I primarily do racial and ethnic categories, um, you know, just to see if these same within group differences exist in water and security as I've seen that they exist for air pollution as well as um, food insecurity. So I think that's one major aspect. And then another one is to see really where these pockets of plumbing incompleteness exist along the U.S.-Mexico border as the majority of studies that look at this uh, measure or this proxy for water and security have found that it primarily exists on the Texas-Mexico border. And the issue with publicly available data is that they have geographic limitations in terms of, you know, there's sort of like the county, state, block, tract, and each of these areas um, consists of several different, uh, like thousands of populations. So when using this sort of data, you don't know exactly where people are located within these boundaries. So let's say for a US census tract, for example, on average, they consist of about 4,000 people. You're only going to get estimates of their demographics and these uh, sort of measures, uh, specifically relating back to my measure of plumbing um, incompleteness, as, as that does come from the American Community Survey that it does belong to this U.S. Census Bureau. Um, you only have an idea of where these people can be within the census tract, mm. and not all census tracts are the same uh, in terms of what their geographic boundaries are. Mm. So once, so you know, one issue is that, as I mentioned earlier, when uh, demographics start to get more uncommon, there's higher margins of error and there's higher like estimates. So the data isn't as accurate. And that's, again, for protection purposes of the individuals who provided their data. Right. So that's one limitation. Um, another limitation, you know, is the ecological fallacy that leads to, again, where you have these, um, how would I say, these estimates of plumbing incompleteness for a tract. But again, you don't know where these people lie. So you're sort of attributing that, okay, 50% of people within this tract are plumbing incomplete. And in a way that's sort of saying it could be everyone in this particular part of the tract or this particular part of the tract. But it's a fallacy in the sense that, again, we don't know where these people lie. And you're sort of attributing something from at a higher level from the tract to the individual level. Again, which is more so what the ecological fallacy is, is that... um. You're attributing, you know, their health, their risk and exposure 
when you exactly don't know if that's true at the individual level. Again, because these are estimates and not full counts. So that's one issue. And again, going back to this geographic limitation is that you don't know where people lie within these tracked boundaries, counties. And when you try to bring other contextually relevant data, such as a community water system or pipe to water, which is another, you know, measure of water security. Again, you aren't going to know where these people lie within these boundaries where you have the tract or you have the county, you try bringing in this community water system lines or boundaries. And again, you just don't know where these people lie. So mm -hmm. you could say that they, you're, you're going to be unsure if they do or don't have access to a community water service. Yeah. Um, and it just makes it harder to bring in, again, just more contextually relevant data that could make your analysis more accurate. Yeah, yeah, right. I wanted to kind of back up and ask a, a question that um, I, I think some some people to, to some degree are, you know, policymakers or people generally uh, who might wonder, like, why, why do you think this, what you're working on really matters as far as um, uh, why does it matter to you, but also why does it why does it matter to um, informing policymakers? Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, to answer both questions, you know, uh, I think this sort of there's this sort of normalization and also resistance to people experiencing water insecurity along the U.S.-Mexico border, where the house that I grew up in, uh, which, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I am from the U.S.-Mexico border, and this is where I grew up, and. The area I grew up in, my house, uh, my grand, my grandmother's house, uh, was a colonia for, for a long time. And you know, a, a funny thing about colonias is that once they get this designation, it's sort of never removed from the neighborhood. Uh, so that's like one thing to consider when working with this sort of uh, colonia data. But again, going back to this like normalization, or you know, this is what we just have to deal with. That my grandparents went thirty years without access to water, you know, and this is something I never heard growing up up until about maybe a couple of years ago where I brought up, you know, the kind of work I'm doing and I asked them and they're like, oh yeah, like, yeah, we went through this and that's just sort of what it is. You know, everyone on the street, everyone in the neighborhood went through this. There's nothing we could really do other than, you know, just try and survive. You know, we're going to get water somehow, some way. And that's sort of what's going on with Colonias now. So that's sort of my personal connection to it. Um, you know, and I've done other work in Colonias where, you know, that just exists down the road for me and it's sort of this similar situation that I mentioned earlier where they don't have electricity, they don't have paved roads. So, you know, these struggles still exist. And going back to, you know, the policy implications of this, where um, I believe Texas is the only state to officially recognize colonias, and they did so roughly around 40, 30 years ago. Um, and they did make their efforts to increase water access, uh, wastewater treatment, but it sort of, you know, just stopped. Um, and there's some more malicious things going on there where either community water service providers or policymakers, or sort of like, you know what, this area isn't worthy of our investment. We're not getting enough money from them. Or, you know, they're too far from us. They're too rural. It's not going to be worth, again, the investment of trying to give these people water. Mm. So that's one aspect of it. And this was sort of, this sentiment uh, was sort of put forth again, I think during one of the most like recent uh, meetings of the legislation in Texas, where again, they're going to start providing more water, start providing better water infrastructure, but in their language, they purposely said, we're going to exclude colonias, hmm. right? You know, and it's sort of going back in contrast to what they've done for the past 30 years, where it's like, they're trying to make the effort, trying to improve the situation of these communities. But then again, a couple of years later, after this project sort of ended for them, it's like, well, we don't care about them anymore. Hmm. We did what we had to. And that's sort of that. Hmm. 
right? And that's just in Texas. I believe New Mexico has made their efforts to officially start recognizing them. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not too sure on that, but you know, there is better data on these colonias within New Mexico. So I'm assuming some more stuff is going on there. Um, and in Arizona, it's a more interesting situation as most of these colonias are located within uh, Native American reservations, you know, that have their own set of tribal laws and that sort of go against federal laws. And as it's also well documented in the literature that Native Americans, you know, have their major issues with water and security. So it'd be interesting to know what's sort of going on there and how do these people gain water. And in California, they have the least number of colonias, um, but they sort of, um, yeah, their situation is a bit more complex in terms of that they're not located too near to cities, whereas that's not the case within uh, New Mexico and Texas, for example. Hmm. So it's just sort of, you know, what could apply to Texas might not apply in the other three states. Hmm. So I think that's one important thing to gather, you know, where are these po- where do these pockets of plumbing insecurity, I'm sorry, plumbing incompleteness exist, you know, that's this proxy for water insecurity. Uh, again, as mentioned earlier, where this is the first study to do an entire borderlands uh, study, mm. right? So again, is one thing is figuring out where these pockets exist and how do the state legislatures or how do these people feel about it? Yeah. And, and, and thinking about the whole borderlands area that you're looking at and the potential populations impacted, I mean, what, what would you say is roughly the estimate of the number of people that are uh, in these colonias that are kind of uh, impacted by this issue? I mean, is it in the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? I don't know. Yeah, it'd roughly be in the tens of thousands. Uh, again, given the limitations of the data, I can't mm. say <laughs> the mm. exact number, but... Uh, Roughly around 840,000 people live in colonias, with the population of the borderlands being around 8 million. So, you know, you know, close to one-tenth of the population lives in these, uh, in colonias. Uh, and again, that's not to say that everyone, that not all residents of colonias are water insecure, but, you know, it might be that in some sort of way they are. Or, you know, if they're not experiencing it now, that thankfully they've been given access or have some sort of better access doesn't mean that they didn't experience it in the past, right? Mm-hmm. So I think at the end of the day, it's just uh, to work towards better improving the situation of Colonia residents in these communities. And uh, one of the interesting findings of my paper is that, of my dissertation for, um, for what I can share for now, is that the belief is that water insecurity mainly uh, exists within Colonias, but I found that in my results that the majority of the inequalities related to uh, plumbing and completeness at least exists outside of colonias hmm. so it could be that um the colonias are more not as demographically diverse or you know it could be you know what kind of communities exist outside of colonias within the borderlands that are more um you know water insecure hmm. yeah and i think you touched on this a little bit but as far as what what kind of if you could look, you know, ahead in a couple of years, uh, once you get your research published, um, what in your mind right now, like what kind of legislation or government policies do you, th- would, would you hope to, um, have an impact on or, or help to inform? So I think the first step is, you know, to officially recognize these colonias, they do exist. Uh, and what might apply in Texas might not apply in New Mexico in terms of the severity of the colonias, you know, colonias have existed for much longer, at least in Texas around close to 60, 70 years now. But it could be that uh, colonies in California, Arizona are a bit more fresh to the scene, you know, and they might have their own sets of problem. Uh, you know, one thing is the physical landscape of these areas. What does water 
look like at a general level? Is this water suffering? Is this, sorry, is this area already suffering from a lack of water? Generally, is their aquifer already depleted? You know, that's an issue that's plaguing the, you know, the El Paso, uh, Las Cruces area. And we're, these areas having to rely on an aquifer from much further north in New Mexico, for example, right? So what is the, what does the water landscape look like there? Um, you know, and, you know, going down in, into these communities, you know, respecting these communities and getting their needs met is essentially, I think, the most, the, the most crucial part, right? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, as a quantitative researcher, we only have an idea of what's going, of what might be going on there, you know, and data is spatially limited, um, you know, limited by time where this data was collected a couple years ago. It could be that the situation got better or it worsened, right? Um, so again, you know, just going into these communities, seeing what they actually need, uh, you know, it might be that they're okay with one aspect of their situation where they've come as a community to start, you know, informing forming this informal water system amongst themselves. You know, they could be okay with the water trucks that provide them water. They could be okay with purchasing water. You know, those are some things that could be happening there. Or it could be that, um, you know, again, just listening to their constituents, giving them, you know, political representation, integrating them in some sort of either uh, in a political sense, integrating them in, you know, to community water system, you know, and not, not giving them a shorthand, right? You know, if you're going to provide piped water, you also have to provide wastewater treatment, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there's other issues that are going to start coming, are going to start uh, developing more over time with, the, with climate change again, you know, like what does the water landscape look like there? Is flooding going to become a situation? There's other facets of water security that need to be, sorry, of water infrastructure that need to be taken into consideration for these sorts of areas that, again, might not even have paved roads or pavement mm -hmm. to, you know, sort of deal with flooding or water rainwater that could be happening yeah which is another issue right yeah i know that wow there's a, there's a lot lot there to consider but but really good that it's being documented um in, in the work you're doing um so i i just wanted to get kind of just a couple more questions towards the end and i was thinking that you know is there um looking back because this is more of just like how you what was it sort of the impetus for you to start looking at this problem and i think you mentioned it a little bit but was there some key experiences in your past um that brought you to have an interest in this inquiry and and also i just to recognize that you know, i know you you, uh, you got a bachelor's degree um from university of texas uh el paso mm -hmm. uh it sounds like you studied psychology and then also you got a, a master's degree um in um sociology mm -hmm. so um how, how, how does that, uh, that previous academic experience, how do you feel that that's informing your work now? Yeah, and um, yeah, so I initially began doing food insecurity research, uh, given that's what I was interested in as an undergraduate student. And then moving forward, I started focusing on air pollution. And it sort of, sort of took me a while where, you know, it's, uh, I'm looking at these studies nationally. And, you know, I want to get more to like the nitty gritty, you know, focus on a specific area. And I don't know why it took me, you know, like three, four years into my dissertation where it's like, hey, why am I not focusing on the area I come from? Right. And that sort of started with my first uh, one of my paper, one of my uh, older papers. I started looking at uh, air pollution along the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Um, and, you know, yeah, just sort of, you know, going back home in my work and sort of looking at the issues that existed there. Right. Where uh, something else to mention is that even though I grew up in a former colonia, and grew up, you know, relatively close to a bunch of other colonias is that this, these sort of issues aren't really spoken or too well known outside of, you know, an academic perspective or even a policymaker, um, you know, like these kinds of spaces where 
people that grew up down the street from you don't really talk about these issues. And I'm grateful, you know, to not have sort of experienced this firsthand, but, you know, also be in a space where, hey, more work still needs to be done and sort of, you know, researched. Um, so I think that's something important, right? And I think sort of this aspect came came to me when I had to move back to Texas during um, during COVID where I was living with my grandparents and, you know, just sort of seeing and hearing of their experiences of what it was like here and the area that they've lived in for at least, you know, these 40, 40 plus years. Mm. Um, so I think that's one aspect, right? And then sort of just seeing these other issues that are developing, that were developing back home in Texas that, uh, you know, a fracking plant wanted to come into a colonia, you know, and they already have an existing some sort of waste facility, not a waste facility, uh, some sort of like polluting industry. And they just want to make things worse for these, you know, residents. Um, and, you know, and they do it on purpose, right? Because they know that they don't have the political representation to push back, mm. you know, and these are just sort of these issues that are developing, these environmental just injustice issues that are developing and have existed for a long time, you know, not only in the borderlands, but throughout the entire country. And, you know, and they're primarily impacting uh, low-income communities, communities of color, mm. right? And it's just sort of, what can we, as researchers, you know, what's what's our role in this? You know, apart from just doing the research, how do we get involved with these communities? You know, community organizations, or you know, just uh, lending lending our hand or making our work more easily accessible, disseminating our work in different ways. So I think these are you know some of the important ways in which you know we as researchers begin to disseminate our work, get more involved with the community, um, and you know, and you know, it's we're also learning. We learn much more from the community than they learn from us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you for, for putting this hard work into this issue, uh, issue and, and illuminating it for the rest of us so that there, there's awareness and potentially room to, uh, to improve the situation for so many people. Well, Ricardo, thank you again so much for, for taking the time to talk about what, what you're working on. We will be recording and posting more interviews with researchers at the University of Utah who are engaged in the work of climate change science and policy here on this podcast, Talking Climate. To hear more and to learn more about the Wilkes Center, go to wilkescenter.utah.edu.